0: Turn there, Matthew chapter 2, as we start our series in, uh, well, this is really week two, In the Dark Streets Shineth, which comes from, I feel like this is a new chord here. Is this a new chord? I feel like I'm off today. Is that new? Does anybody know? I don't want to step on that and break that. Somebody say, pay attention, Pastor. I have ADD, so you just never know what might distract me, and uh, you know, so that'll be good there. Actually, as you're turning to Matthew 2, go ahead and give a wave to the people around you. Normally, we like to touch somebody. You can't touch people now anymore, so just wave, look behind you, look to your left and right, and, um, and just mouth something to them, and they, they won't even know what you're mouthing. They won't know what you're mouthing. You could say, you are beautiful, or you could say something different. And I would not encourage that. But uh, so, listen, it's so good that we could be gathered. And uh, we're going to pray in just a moment as you find Matthew chapter 2. And, um, but as we navigate this, this phrase, in the dark streets shineth, comes from the old hymn called O Little Town of, of Bethlehem. And as the, the, the stanza goes, it says, In the dark streets shineth an everlasting light. And certainly we have faced some dark times, some dark streets, and I want to give you this um, verse here in just a second. And as we navigate this verse, um, we're going to look at one verse, and then we're going to back up to look at the rest of the passage. But let's just take a few minutes uh, to just pray and ask God to speak to us through his word, the scriptures. And, um, and so if you'll join me in a word of prayer, that would be awesome. Let's pray together. Father, we pray right now you would steady our hearts. Pray right now, God, you would speak to each of us. Pray that you'd speak to me, Lord, and you'd speak through me. I ask that you'd help me, a sinful man, communicate your truths, Lord. And, uh, and Father, I pray that all of us during this time would see Jesus more clearly than ever. We'll be drawn nearer to Christ during this Advent Christmas season. I ask for grace for all who are here and, and, and our online community as well, that you would give us grace to be worshiping you with our minds. Lord, we we think of worshiping you with our voices and with our hands lifted or silently in prayer, but Father, we want to worship you with our minds, giving you our attention right now during these moments, Father. So we lay aside all the distractions and we're here for you. And as you're there in your seat, let me just encourage you, wherever you are in your spiritual walk, let me encourage you to have a little conversation with God. Maybe for you, wherever you're at in your spiritual walk, you're going to say, God, if you're real, show yourself to me today. You might just want to say that quietly in your heart. I'll give you a second to do that. Lord, if you're real, show yourself to me today. If, if you know that God is real, but you're wanting and sometimes struggling to follow him, maybe you just want to say, Lord, speak to me today. Lord, speak to me today. I need a word from you. Just go ahead and pray that in, in, in the quietness of your heart. Lord, I need a word from you today. And then you might want to say something like this. Lord, help me to obey. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said? Amen. Amen. All right. So I want to read to you this beautiful Christmas passage. The title of the message is Faith Despite a Christmas Catastrophe. And um, as we read this verse here, uh, we're going to look at verse 18, chapter 2, verse 18. And uh, this is the first verse we're going to look at, and then we'll zoom back out. But I want you to think about this verse, kind of a strange verse. It's actually a prophecy. You may know there are many prophecies written about Jesus hundreds and hundreds of years before he came. And this is sort of an unusual prophecy about Jesus. Here's what it says. A voice heard in Ramah. That's a city uh, just north of um, uh, Jerusalem and, and near Bethlehem and that whole area there. It's within that region. A voice heard in Ramah weeping in great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. This is kind of an strange verse, if you think about it, kind of an enigmatic verse. This is not a verse you typically see on a Christmas card, you know, with a beautiful picture of Mary and Joseph and Jesus. This is not what you would probably write in your Christmas card. A voice was heard in Rama, weeping, great mourning, or some translations would say Um, You know, loud, loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She's weeping so hard, she's refusing to be comforted. Have you ever met a person in such deep grief that they refuse to even be comforted? When you try to comfort them, they're just like, get away from me. I just got to be by myself right now. I just got to let this out and scream and punch my pillow or something more because I'm in that kind of mourning why is she weeping? Because her children are no more. This is a very odd prophecy and something we typically don't like to talk about. And as we think about In the Dark Street Shineth and Christmas, we typically like to sanitize Christmas. And I think that does more harm than good. We, we like to make Jesus look pale and pasty and perfect. And, um, and when we do that, when we have Jesus looking that way, What happens, I believe, in our hearts is we keep Jesus at at a distance from us, right? Because when Jesus is pale and pasty and looks so holy, and we are often living in such a broken world, struggling with our emotions, struggling with our sin, struggling with our attitudes, it's like, I can't ever approach perfect Jesus I have a few pictures here. I always like to bring up pictures. Uh, they help me. And uh, here are some of them of the birth of Christ. And, you know, we'll see these on Christmas cards and uh, on, you know, different places. Right. But, but we show it. You know, it's the most wonderful time of the year. Here is baby Jesus. Look at him. Uh, this is from a uh, Orthodox uh, church. And look at, look at Jesus' face there. He looks like a grown man, doesn't he? And a little kid's body. And then there is another one here. Let's see. Uh, He looks more like a baby there, but still sort of like a grown man. This is kind of interesting. And then let's see. we got a few more here. Uh, He definitely looks like a grown man right there. I mean, that's creepy. And um, (laughs) all right, it it gets worse. It gets worse. Don't worry. Here, here, this one again. Notice the halos, very white, very clean, all this sort of stuff, you know. Um, And then this one. This is an actual picture. This is an actual picture in a church. Um, someone wanted to have baby Jesus on the center of their altar or their stage. And I don't know if you can notice, but below his knee, that's a, that's a person. That's how large that statue is. Uh, now, this picture took the internet by storm last year when it was completed. And someone wisely noted and said, you know, baby Jesus looks a little bit like Phil Collins. And, um, and so I think we got that picture there. We got that picture, Mike? You can, you can be the guest and say, does that look like Phil Collins? <laughs> oh, man. John Eldridge says this, writing about this very same thing. He says, the nativity scenes um, in artwork are particularly ridiculous. Classic art, depicting the infant, themes that are now repeated on Christmas cards, in creche scenes displayed in churches and on our coffee tables, they portray a rather mature baby. I'd say that's accurate, right? Very white, radiant, clean, as no baby is ever truly clean. Arms outstretched to reassure the nervous adults. He's intelligent, without any need. His halo glowing. He is like a conscious adult in a baby body, a super baby. The infant. Clearly, never pooped his diapers. He looks ready to take up the prime ministership. Man. And and what he goes on to say is, again, when we view Jesus in this way, we view him at a distance. Instead of what the name Jesus that was given to him, Emmanuel, which means this, God with us. God who came near us, who left the throne of heaven and came to walk in the same mud, came to walk in the same mire, came to deal with the same frustrating family, came to deal with the same depression, came to deal with the same death, came to deal with the same pandemics, Uh, all of that he walked with us. And now Christ is near to us. And that, I believe, is the work of Satan who wants to keep our union. Keep Jesus at a distance for us. Satan is quite crafty and quite tricky. He can make you religious. Satan certainly doesn't mind if you come to church. Oh, he loves that. Come to church, do religious things, light candles, say prayers, sing songs, give money. Just don't get close to Jesus. Don't ever begin to love him with all of your own heart. Don't ever begin, certainly not to spend time with him during the week. Oh, heaven forbid that. Oh, no. And see, when we keep Jesus at a distance and we keep him this pasty, pale figure from history, instead of knowing him as our personal Lord and Savior, we miss what Christianity is truly all about. We miss what Christmas is all about, that God became man, that he came near to us. And so we want to be able to navigate that. And I want us to zoom back out because you're like, what does this have to do with this weird passage about this Lady Rachel weeping and Rama and, and, and loud mourning? And, and she's weeping because her children are no more. Well, as we zoom out to this Christmas passage, not one that's read uh, familiar during Christmas seasons, but it's part of the Christmas story. And uh, we're going to pick back up in Matthew chapter 2. This time we're going to read the whole, the whole story and, and we'll read verses 13 through and then you can sort of see what's going on here because Christmas is not perfect. Christmas is hard. Christmas is difficult. And the first Christmas was difficult. And I think when I realize that, it, it kind of encourages me when I have a difficult Christmas, amen? So now verse 13 says this. Now when they, that is Joseph, and Mary, and in right here, they're talking about the wise men or the magi. If you read earlier in the chapter, it says the magi or the wise men came to visit Jesus and they brought gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Of course, we don't know how many there were, uh, but they came and visited, and we don't know exactly the timeline of that. Some people say it might have happened right after he was born. Some people say it might have happened later because it says Jesus was in a house. It used a little different term, it doesn't call him an infant. In the Greek, it's more of a child, so he could be quite toddler age. Could be anywhere from two years old, and we'll see that also in the text here. But the word they is the Magi. Now, when they had departed, that's the Magi. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph, the stepfather of Jesus, right, in a dream and said, Rise, take the child, not the child from the Mandalorian, the child, Jesus, and his mother and flee to Egypt. And remain there until I tell you. Well, why, why why, why, would God disrupt Joseph and Mary and halo, perfect little Jesus? Why would he disrupt their Christmas with a free trip to Egypt? This is strange. I mean, why not just have a peaceful Christmas? Why can't we just, you know, have the, the logs burning or, or at least it on Netflix and hear the crackle and just have a nice peaceful Christmas. See, sometimes when when we don't get a peaceful time, a peaceful Christmas, we tend to get angry with God, right? And and we tend to, uh, you know, wonder what he is up to. And again, this passage shows us here, here is the Holy Family, and they are not having a peaceful Christmas. They are now having to be rushed out of their cozy and comfy little home to a place called Egypt. But don't worry, folks. It gets worse. Why are they being rushed out of their home in the middle of the night? Well, the rest of the verse says there says, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod, that is sort of the king of that area underneath Roman rule. Herod is about to search for the child, not to give him a gift, not to bring him uh, you know pumpkin pie or bread pudding or some other thing, not to help light his home with Christmas lights, but to what Destroy him. Well, this is an interesting Christmas, isn't it? Someone is out to destroy the Christ child. Verse 14 says this, And he rose, that's Joseph, and he rose and he took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. And this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken. Again, another prophecy, saying these things would happen. Out of Egypt... I called my son. So God even knew this was going to happen. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise man, became furious and he sent and he killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in that region. Not just Bethlehem, but in that region who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Well, this is quite brutal. Look at the next verse there. This then, verse 17, was fulfilled, what was spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because... They are no more. Ladies and gentlemen, this is a Christmas catastrophe. This is wickedness. This is a dark street. And what we forget about Advent as we light the candles here, and traditionally candles mean different things here, but Advent is this period of waiting, is this period of longing. It's a period of darkness before Christ comes. It's a reminder of all those things. Not that we needed a reminder of those things in 2020. But I find that it's helpful to connect that because it just makes Advent seem perfect. And so listen, this week's candle is often called the Bethlehem Candle. And typically, again, when we think about Bethlehem and we think about Jesus, we think of, oh, a quaint little town. Oh, look at the cute little manger and everything just looks perfect and serene. We picture Jesus even as a grown adult, you know, wispy hair blowing in the wind, just walking through the streets of Jerusalem like, like a son come home and just, you know, feeding people, feeding the 5,000, healing people, just frolicking around, no, no big deal. We forget that Jesus was sought after. We forget that Jesus was attacked and even as one writer said, was hunted. This is what one writer said. He said this, we forget the context of Jesus' life and mission. His story begins with genocide. The massacre of the innocents is what this event is called. Herod's attempt to murder Jesus by ordering the systemic execution of all young boys in and around Bethlehem. The writer goes on to say, I've never seen this in any manger scene. Who could bear it? You must picture ethnic cleansing of the 20th century in Bosnia, Rwanda, Burma, or uh, Iran. Wicked atrocity, blood-soaked, in the ground of little children who just minutes earlier were laughing and playing. And I realize we have young children here and this is difficult for everybody to hear and it should be. But we don't think of Christmas and think of this at the same time. And I say, well, that's a problem because listen, what happens is we when we have difficult times, when we hit rough waters, when we feel like things are happening to us, we tend to say, God, why? And we keep God at a distance instead of remembering the bigger story instead of remembering that this is the same story that jesus walked through the writer goes on to say the little family flees the country under the cover of darkness like fugitives mary joseph and the child god's strategy is very intriguing isn't it surely god could have simply taken herod out bam Or he could have sent angels to surround the Holy Family. He could have used Jedi magic to, know there's no child here. God could have done all of those things. Why must they run for their lives? It ought to make you and I think twice about how God goes about his plans in the world. So we might want to change, you know, the, the beautiful pictures we have of Bethlehem and this perfect baby and this perfect situation. Because what happens is we try to have a little perfect situation around our home, don't we? knowing that our lives are a hot mess, knowing that there is brokenness in our family, knowing there is pain and discouragement in our hearts. And we want to pretend that it's the most wonderful time of the year. Sometimes it's the most difficult time of the year, and that's okay, because God is still at work. Just as he was still at work, Again, why did I tell you and began with this as a prophecy? Because God already knew this would happen. And he didn't spare his son from hard times. And so we need to remember that we need to draw close to God. We might want to reframe this and call it the Christmas carnage, right? Instead of all the wonderful trees and lights, we want to, instead of "Oh, little town of Bethlehem, you could call it the Bethlehem bloodbath. The midnight mass, no, not midnight mass, it's a midnight massacre. It's a mistletoe murder. Murder on 31st Street. Not a silent night, a silent slaughter. Snowing and slaying, but not slaying in a little wooden thing, a different kind of slaying. Instead of garland, we have genocide. Pastor, I'm not so sure I like this message today. I just kind of came to church to get lifted up, and you just kind of like threw the hammer down on us now I'm reminding myself included cuz guess where I prefer to live. I prefer to live in Garland and Mistletoe and it's the most wonderful time there. That's where I prefer to live. But listen, we don't really live there. That's a lie. We live in a war-torn world. It is at war. It is spiritual and Satan is on the attack seeking to destroy. So, point number 1, you could write this down. Christmas reminds us that we are at war. Jesus was hunted. Christmas reminds us that we are at war. It is a spiritual war, a battle for the human hearts and souls, a battle between evil and good. And Christmas is hard. Things are often dark, and that's normal, and that's okay. Christmas reminds us that we are at war. And listen, if we don't understand this, we'll mess up our story, and our expectations about life will be all skewed because we tend to think, oh, no. I, I, I've admitted this to you several times. I like to think I live in Mr. Rogers' neighborhood where everything is fine and the little train comes around and everybody just gets along. But no, we live in a ravaged place, ravaged by sin, and Satan is on the prowl, seeking whom he may devour is what the scripture says. In fact, there's a different Christmas scene from the book of Revelation. I was just reading Revelation in my time during the week uh, with the Lord, and I came across this passage, and it tells the Christmas story from a different perspective. Revelation 12 says this. And another sign, uh, and then uh, a dragon, excuse me, there we go. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. And then verse 4 goes on to say, His tail swept down a third of the stars in heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might... Go ahead, next slide. Destroy her. I think you skipped one, Mike. There we go. Might devour it. There we go. Oh, my screen was different. Sorry about that. Might devour it. Again, this is not on a Christmas card. You don't get Christmas cards with a red dragon ready to destroy Mary and the Christ child. No, but then she gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule the nations with the rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And then later on uh, in verse 17, it says this, because the dragon couldn't destroy Christ at that first Christmas, verse 17 says this, then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to give them all little gifts. Went off like the Grinch and just wanted to be a little bit mean and wanted to just steal their gifts from the little Whoville people. Oh, no, that's not Satan's plan. He's not just coming to steal a few gifts from you and and ruin your little Christmas time. It says very clearly, he was fierce and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. Who are the rest of her offspring? That's us. In fact, the verse tells us, right? Look at the rest of the verse. On those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. This is the real Christmas picture. There is a great war going on. And again, these are not often depicted in our little quaint pictures, but this is the true story. And when you and I peel back the layers of our life, we realize we are being shot at. We are being attacked day in and day out. The thoughts that come into your mind, the discouraging thoughts, the attacking thoughts that come into your mind that tell you you're worthless, that tell you life isn't worth living or uh, no one wants you or, or all of these sorts of things. Those are not just accidental thoughts, ladies and gentlemen. There is an enemy of your soul who despises and hates you. John Eldredge writes about this in his book *Epic*, and he, he reminds us that if we don't picture ourselves in a war torn world, we will misinterpret our life. He says it's like arriving at a movie forty minutes late. You ever ride that a movie late? You see these scenes going on and you can't put the story together, right? But if you watch the movie from the beginning, you're like, "Oh, that guy, yeah, I know that he's really bad. I I, I see that, right?" I, I saw, And I can follow the plot. But when you arrive to a movie late, you're like, I don't get it. This movie stinks, right? And when we don't understand the plot of the story that you're in, sir, ma'am, when you don't understand the plot of the story you're in, you will misinterpret what God is doing. You will think God is mad at me. God is angry at me. Or why did he allow this to happen? But if you understand the story, the bigger picture, you understand the events of your life. John Eldridge writes this. He says, has God abandoned us? Did we not pray enough? Is this just something we accept as part of life? Suck it up even though it breaks our hearts? And after a while, the accumulation of event after event after event that hurt us and wound us, that we do not like and do not understand, it erodes our confidence that we are a part of something grand, that we're a part of something good. And it reduces us to a survivalist mindset. I know, I know. We've been told that we matter to God. And part of us partly believes it. But life has a way of chipping away at that conviction that we matter. Undermining our settled belief that if he means good to us, I mean, if God really means good to us, if that's true, then why didn't he fill in the blank for your life? If God means good, why didn't he fill in the blank? Why didn't he heal your mom, save your marriage, get you married in the first place, help you out more? Either A, we falsely believe, we're blowing it, or B, God is holding out on us, or some combination of both, which is where most people land. Think about it. Isn't this where you land? With all the things that haven't gone the way you'd hoped and wanted? Then he says this, until we come to terms with war as the context for our lives, we will not understand life. We will misinterpret 90% of what is happening around us and to us. And it will be very hard to believe that God's intentions towards us are abundant life. And it will be even harder not to feel that somehow, again, we are not just blowing it. Or worse, we will begin to accept some really awful things about the character of God, the four you. The four-year-old little girl who was molested, that was God's will. The ugly divorce that tore apart your family, God wanted that to happen. The plane that crashed and took the lives of so many, that was ordained by God. Most people get stuck at some point because God appears to have abandoned them. He's not coming through for them. One young lady who came in to see me as a counseling appointment, speaking about her life with a mixture of disappointment and cynicism, she said this, God is rather silent right now. And it's been awful. And he said, I don't discount that for a moment. This young lady is unloved. She's unemployed and she is under a lot. But then he said this. Her attitude, though, strikes me as a bit naive. On the level of someone caught in crossfire who asks rather shocked, why are they firing at me? And he goes on to say, God would respond, I'm sorry, but that's not where we are in the story right now. There is still a war. That day is coming later when the lion will lay down with the lamb, when we'll beat our, plow, our swords into plowshares. For now, it is still a bloody battle. He goes on to conclude, that sure explains a whole heck of a lot, doesn't it? And you won't understand your life. You won't see clearly what has happened to you and to your family and how to live with God unless you see it as a battle and a war against your heart with the enemy of your soul doing everything in his power to keep you from a relationship with God. Man. John 10.10, one of the first verses I memorized, says this, and I want to share it with you. The thief, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, John 10.10 says. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Not just give us a bad day, right, right? Not just make us unemployed, but to steal, kill, and destroy. Satan is not playing games with you. Young person, teenager, old person, middle-aged person, he is not playing any games. He came to steal, kill, and destroy. And every day, this is his goal. And so the things that happen to you are not random. That breakup, you know, uh, all that's happening in our world right now, these are not just random accidents. There is a plot afoot, and we are in the middle of it. And when you understand you're at war, well, then it gives us the right perspective, and we don't have to ask, why are they shooting at me? we're at war you know you're going to get shot at and so how do we continue to walk with god and know that we're doing this but notice the other part of the verse though right that's the thief satan but then jesus these are the words of jesus says i have come that they may what we may have life and life abundantly and again, abundant life is often erroneously taught as you're going to get everything you ever wanted. You'll be healthy, wealthy, and wise. You'll marry somebody. You'll live happily ever after. You'll get the car you want. you get the house you want. You'll get the job you want. And when that sort of thinking creeps into the church, it sets us up for all kinds of things. And we distance ourselves from God. And we distance our hearts from God. You may still come to church just with a distant heart from God because secretly we are disappointed that he hasn't come through for us. And so we have to pay attention to these. We have to be aware of these things. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Last week, we talked about hope. And here is the definition we gave for hope last week. Hope is a confident expectation that good things are coming in the future, right? And that's what we talked about is that uh, Advent and Christ coming is really about hope. If God kept his promise to send the Messiah, that's Jesus, he's going to keep his promise to return again and to right every wrong, and to remake the earth, and we will live with him for eternity in a perfect place, right? And so there is that hope. We have this not, I hope so, right? Maybe it'll happen, maybe it won't, right? No, it will happen. It is a confident expectation, and we need hope, right? We need that desire. We need something to look forward to. Christ is going to return and reign and every wrong he will make right. The losses that we've faced in this world won't be losses. The Bible says, as we read last week, that he will return them a hundredfold. So we have to have that hope. But then what is faith? And that's sort of also what the Bethlehem candle is about is faith. Well, faith, I would just like to say, I don't know this is a perfect definition, but I would like to say that faith is the power to do difficult things because of my hope. Amen? The Bible says faith is the evidence of things hoped for the evidence of things hoped for, right? And, and so I have to have this hope, you know, pointing me to the future, but then I've got to have faith. Um, in the Bible, there's this whole chapter, chapter 11 of Hebrews, that gives what's called the hall of faith, and it talks about all these great men and women of God, not perfect men and, men and women of God, because there were prostitutes, and there were crooked people in that lineup, and, um, but it says they live by faith, and it says she did this, and they live by faith. But when they talked about faith, it always talked about as an action, that faith is not, we, we often say and think of faith, well, something, faith I, is just something I believe, right? But if your belief doesn't translate into action, can we say that it's real faith at all, right? Right now, you have faith, that pew is going to hold you up, right? You're sitting with all your weight in that pew. You don't know who built it. You don't know that I didn't come in and knock out the legs from underneath the middle part and it's just going to break on you in a few minutes. Somebody's like, I shouldn't have ate that donut before I came today. It's gonna to count against me. Right? We put our faith in action, and, and so if you didn't have faith in the pew, you'd be standing up right now. You'd be like, I don't trust this pew. And um and, and so listen, faith is the power to do difficult things, to walk through the war, because I have hope, knowing that God has already won the battle, knowing that God is gonna equip me for the battle, that God is never gonna leave me nor forsake me in the battle. And in fact, that's really point number two, is that Christmas reminds us first that we're at war, but number two is that Christmas reminds us that God entered the battle for us. That God entered the battle for us. I like to call Christmas Invasion Day. Invasion Day. It's when the kingdom of God, boom, invaded this war-torn world. He sent Jesus in behind enemy lines, right? And here comes Jesus. It's kind of an odd way to save the world, right? But that's how God works. He doesn't work in ways you and I think. Invasion day, the kingdom of God invaded the kingdom of darkness, and he sent Jesus as the ultimate warrior, as the ultimate solution. In fact, we could add maybe in parentheses to point number two is that not only did God enter the battle for us, but at the cross, he completely won the battle for us. Amen? Where all the powers of hell, all the forces of darkness were completely defeated at the crucifixion of Jesus. And that is where the battle was won. And so I want you to think about this. I want me to think about this. Have you ever wondered what sort of story you're in? Have you taken into account the events of your life not as random, but the fact that there is an enemy after your heart? And so the things you think? The the things that have happened to you and your family are not random and haphazard. They're not a God who has ignored you and abandoned you, but there is an enemy afoot doing everything in his power to keep you from a union with Christ. Have you thought about the story of your life? Have you realized that God is near in your story? See, some of us, we, we look at all the difficulties and we don't see how God was at work in all of those things. I've navigated some difficult times in my life and, um, and, and once Christ opened my eyes, I went from being bitter to like, God, where were you during these seasons? And then when he opened my eyes, I saw, oh, no, God was right there. And then he was right there. And he didn't let this happen. And yet, and then, he, and then he showed up there. And it was just like all the pieces of my life began to make sense when I viewed it from this angle when God finally opened up my eyes. You may be familiar with the old little poem about the footprints in the sand, right? Classic poem. I remember my grandparents had that, and I didn't understand it back when I was young, but they had this little footprints in the sand, and it's this poem of, Lord, why did you leave me? All throughout my life, there were two sets of footprints. You were walking with me, but then, Lord, as I look back over the hardest parts of my life, the hardest seasons of my life, and I only see one set of footprints, God, why did you leave me during the hardest parts of my life? And then the Lord responded. He says, oh, no, no, my son, you've misunderstood there's only one set of footprints during the hardest times of your life because those were the times where I carried you, my child. And when you look back through your life and God opens your eyes to see this as a war and that we can draw near to him and that Christ is near to us, that he was there, man, it changes everything, doesn't it? So how can you draw near to Christ? Well, we're going to observe the Lord's Supper here in just a moment. And I can't think of really any better way, right, to draw near to Christ. And uh, if you are here joining us today and you're a believer, you're a Christian, doesn't matter what church background you're from, uh, that's okay. You can be from a different denomination, but you say, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. You're welcome to celebrate with us. And, um, and what is the Lord's Supper? It's a picture, right? It's a picture of Christ coming for us. It's a picture of his nearness to us and his, in fact, dying for us. And so I'm going to ask Justin to come on up and um, I'm going to ask uh, that you would get out there should be in front of you a uh, little safe, sanitary Lord's Supper. Uh, these are a little difficult, so I'm going to give you a few moments. And um, the, the, the top portion has to be gently lifted so you can get out the cracker. And, um, and then the, the next portion will have to be lifted to get out the juice. We're going to hold it so we can get everybody together. And I'm going to read a scripture and just pray in a second. But I want to give you a few seconds to open that. And then, if you'll just hold it till uh, we can all participate together. One of the theological words that we use around Christmas time is the incarnation. Not carnation like a flower, the incarnation. We use that to describe Christ coming, the God man. That's what it's called. God became God incarnate, meaning God in the flesh. This is crazy, mind-blowing, how did he do that? All these sorts of things. But it's called the incarnation. That's another word for what happens at Christmas. God became flesh. And we're celebrating, right? The cracker reminds us of the flesh, the body of Jesus, that he became a man, but also that he was killed on a cross for us. But here's the most beautiful thing about it. When you look up the word incarnation in the original language and in the historical uses of it the word incarn is uh, used as a medical word it's used like this describing incarn describes flesh that grows over a wound it's applied to healing the word refers to refers to a recovery of a wounded flesh due to the presence of new flesh there's a wound that needs to be covered over, right? And your body does this naturally, right? You, you, you get a cut or a bruise or something like that, and there is damage, there is a wound. And then your body creates new flesh. That's, that's what the Latin term and uh, old term would mean, incarn. Can I just tell you, all of us have been wounded by sin, but not just wounded like a little bit. We were mortally wounded so much that we could not heal ourselves. We had to have new flesh given to us. And the Bible says that anyone who comes to Christ is a brand new creation. His flesh has now come into us and has restored us. Man, isn't that beautiful? So the Bible says this, if you had a chance to get your cracker and you're holding it there in your hand, let's just take a moment to pray silently. And this is a good time for you to thank God It's a good time for you maybe to confess some sin, some things going on in your life. So with head bowed and eyes closed, nobody bothering their neighbor, you could just have some quiet time with the Lord. Father, we come to you thanking you for your body broken for us. Lord, we know this is just a cracker, a symbolic reminder. This cracker has no healing powers, no magic. But Lord, this is a reminder of what you did for us. You became sin. You became broken for us. You became flesh for us. Thank you for that. Lord, forgive us of our sins. Help us to continually to be amazed at you. In Jesus' name, amen. The Bible says that when uh, they had the supper, Jesus took the bread and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and he said, take this and eat. This is my body. Let's take it together, family. If you hold the cup there in your hand. The juice is a symbolic reminder of the blood of Christ. And again, you may need a few seconds to help open it. That's okay. There's a lady named Jill Carnetti. She wrote about the incarnation. As you're holding the juice here, thinking about the blood of Christ that was spilled for us. She says this, the incarnation... God becoming flesh. This astonishing event we remember at Advent, the story that's inspired music and architecture and hope is God's way of doing exactly that. Christ comes in the flesh to cover our mortal wound. God comes near in a body and in weakness in the form of a baby to bring healing to the weak. He becomes wounded because we are wounded. This may seem a foolish mission, but to the blind who receive their sight, to the lame who walk, to the diseased, who are now cleansed, to the deaf, who now hear, to the dead, who are now raised, and the poor, who have good news brought to them. This is the most beautiful foolishness ever known. So as you're holding the the juice there, the Bible says this, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's take it together, family. Now, if you're joining us today and you don't have a personal relationship with Christ, earlier we said that, you know, communion, Lord's Supper is for Christians, those who are already believers, because it's a symbolic reminder. Listen, if you're here without Christ, we have something even better to offer. We have the real thing, right? This is a symbol. It reminds us of what Christ did. We like to say we have the real bread of life to offer you. We have the real blood of Christ to offer you. If you don't know Christ personally and you're here today, and uh, we want to invite you to begin that relationship. What does that take, you say? It's very simple. God made the gospel as simple that a child could understand it and so deep that the greatest minds of our history haven't been able to plumb the depths of it. That's how beautiful and simple the gospel is. But it says this, that we turn from our sins. The Bible calls that repent. That just simply means turn from our ways and embrace God's ways. I turn my back on my way of doing things and I embrace Christ. And then I confess him as Lord. Confess with my mouth, confess with my heart. Lord, I want you to be my boss. That's what Lord you means. Lord, I want you to take control of my life. You can do that with a prayer. Why would we need to do that, you say? Well, as we talk about war, we have to remember that we as human beings joined in the war, but we didn't join God's side. We joined Satan's side. Do you remember what happened at the very beginning of history, Adam and Eve? We said, stiff arm you, forget you, God, I would prefer to go it my own way. And we joined Satan, and we committed high treason against the kingdom of God. We tried to overthrow the throne of God with our sins. And every one of us, we like to blame Adam and Eve, but every one of us has done that, right? You have sinned, I have sinned. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Just because I'm a pastor doesn't mean I don't sin. Look, ask my family. Any day, I sin. I have tried to overthrow the throne of God. We don't like to say it that way, right? We like to say, I just try to get my own way, right? No, we have tried to overthrow and take God's throne. Imagine if you walked into the throne of God and commanded him to get off the throne. That's what you and I have done. The Bible says it like this. We'll put it on the screen. Romans five ten says this. For while we were, what? enemies we were God's enemies for while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son how much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life listen even while we were God's enemies he still died for you he still died for his enemies there's no there's no story where the hero dies for the enemies right he dies for the good people none of us were good and Christ still died for us and that's what it means to be a Christian It means to say God I'm tired I'm done being your enemy and and I just want to walk with you So I'd love to give you an opportunity to do that. You can do that just by praying. So with heads bowed and eyes closed, I'd love to lead you in a prayer if that's you. Nobody bothering their neighbor. You might want to pray just something silently in your heart like this. Dear Jesus, dear Jesus, I admit that I've sinned against you. I admit that I've sinned against you. I'm sorry for my sins. I'm sorry for my sins. I asked that you would come and live inside of me. I asked that you would come and live inside of me. Jesus, I believe you died in my place on the cross. Jesus, I believe you died in my place on the cross. And I believe that you rose again on the third day. I believe that you rose again on the third day. God, I give you my life right now. God, I give you my life right now. Help me to follow you all the days of my life. Help me to follow you all the days of my life. With heads bowed and eyes closed, nobody bothering the neighbors. If you prayed that prayer for the very first time, we'd love to celebrate with you. We're not going to embarrass you or anything like that. Or we, We'd love for you to connect with us, though, using a connection card. There's a spot on there. You could let one of us know um, in the back after service. We'd love to talk with you and, and celebrate that you're part of the family. Because in a war-torn world, we all need help. We all need a troop to fight with. We need some people to have our backs when we're getting fired upon, and that's what a church is really. It is. It's a family, but it's a family in the middle of a war. So I'd love for you to do that. If you came with somebody, man, let them know. They'd love to celebrate with you. So I want to pray for all of us together in the middle of this war. Father, I realize when we talk and we look at the Scriptures and look at the fact that we are at war, it's not easy for anyone to swallow. It's not easy for me to swallow looking at the massacre of the innocents. Lord, that that doesn't give us the warm fuzzies about Christmas. But Lord, it does inspire our hope because you worked even in the midst of that wickedness. The massacre of the innocents didn't stop your plan from going forward. And so God, we can take courage. And no matter what is formed against any of us, no matter what weapons come against me or anyone in this room, God's plan is not going to be thwarted. It can't be stopped because no one is more powerful than God. Father, give us courage. Give us hope. Lord, may our faith lead into action as we know that we're at war. And may we take courage in the victory that was purchased over 2,000 years ago on the cross, Lord. And may we take courage in the scripture says that we are now all more than conquerors by him who called us. Thank you, Father, for that truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen love for you to stand to your feet. We're going to close through worship and song. This is a time for you to respond to God, however he's calling you to respond. You can sing. You can close your eyes, lift your hands. You may need to kneel in prayer. You may need to be silent. The front is here if you'd love to come and kneel. If you have a prayer need, you'd like to pray with myself or some of our other leaders. We'd love to pray with you in the back after the service just so that we can hear you without having to Scream through masks, and uh, we'd love to serve you in that way. But let's continue to worship the Lord together. Amen? Let's sing.